Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. Making the Mountain is a quarterly artist talk about how and why art gets made in Colorado. Presenters across genres tell the story of how they came to love their medium, explain their process, and show their work. On March 4th, the presenters were Alexander Philippe, filmmaker, Jennifer Louise Tillery, co-owner of Vaux Vintage, and Jolt, a graffiti artist. Welcome to Lighthouse, Making the Mountain. Yes, let's hear it for Making the Mountain. Good, good. Um, my name is Dan Manzanares. I'm the creative curator at Lighthouse. Are you guys, are you guys feeling good? Is, it, is tonight a good night? It seems like this lineup is going to be fucking awesome, right? Um, so I think without further ado, Rebecca Ehrenauer, the host of Making the Mountain. so much for coming out tonight. Um, as Dan mentioned, I'm Rebecca Arenauer. I'm the host and founder of the event. Um, I definitely don't do it alone, though. It wouldn't be happening without the help of Lighthouse, Dan, and Amber. So what do I do for this event? Um, I send a lot of emails. I worry about it. Um, and I recruit artists to speak. If you've come to Making the Mountain before, you know that I have a loose definition of artist. To me, an artist is anyone doing something with intention. But talking with tonight's speakers ahead of the event, I realized I could define artist another way. An artist is something who sees something that the rest of us miss. And it's not enough to have a kind of x-ray vision. What makes someone an artist is the ability to make the things they see, whether it's a feeling, a flavor, or a vision, and make that come to life for the rest of us. Tonight's presenters all do that. They see things in film, in clothes, and on the street that, the most, that most of us miss. Alexander, Lou, and Jolt have something else in common. Their work comes from, or works against, the made world. Like all artists, they have an aesthetic and a point of view, but the materials they use to express those things are not entirely in their control. Alexander is currently working on a documentary on the shower scene in Psycho. To us, it's a two-minute scene where Janet Lee is murdered. To Alexander, that moment is everything. It explains all of Hitchcock, his technical prowess, his passions, and his fears. That scene has to be the centerpiece of his film. He is, after all, making a documentary about it. But it's a fixed point. He can't change that scene. He can only create around it. For Lou, the co-founder of O Vintage, um, she sees what the the laziest of dressers don't want to admit, that clothes are a form of everyday self-expression. What we wear isn't necessarily who we are, but it is how people see us. As a costume designer and vintage shop owner, she has developed her own fashion sense, but she doesn't make clothes to fit her aesthetic. She finds her style in clothes someone else has designed and a stranger has abandoned. Jolt also depends on the made world. Graffiti doesn't exist in a vacuum, and the best graffiti artists use placement as a way to announce themselves to the world. But the nature of graffiti makes that announcement short-lived. The city is always ready to buff over a graffiti artist's declaration of self. Jolt makes work, know- makes work knowing it'll disappear, and he sees a certain beauty in a buff mark. It's a sign that someone has created something. And I think most artists experience that buff mark of sorts. Usually it's not so literal as someone painting over their work. But in the face of benevolent indifference, it can be hard to remember or to believe that the, even the effort of creation has its own power. 
Tonight is all about celebrating that effort. So let's go behind the buff mark, starting with Alexander. Thanks, guys. Um, we're going to circle back to Hitchcock eventually. But first, I would like to share with you guys two um, childhood memories. So I was born and raised in Switzerland, in Geneva. And when I was two years old, I went to kindergarten at Montessori School. And there was a book that I was really obsessed with and that I would read every morning. Of course, I couldn't read, but I was you know, looking at the pictures. Uh, and that was Horton Hears a Who by Dr. Seuss. I was really drawn to the story of an elephant who realizes that there's an entire universe living inside a little speck of dust, even though nobody else could see or hear it. And I was so fascinated by that book that my teacher actually gave it to me as a present for my third birthday, and I still have it to this, to this day. Now, the second memory, I was about 10 years old. Back then, I was a stamp collector, and there was this one Swiss stamp that I was really into. It was a green five cent or five cinq centime, you know, stamp from 1882. And I got hundreds of them. Same stamp, same year, hundreds of them. And um, I had a really nice microscope that my dad had given to me. And I would spend days examining those stamps, looking for little nuances between them and documenting that. And so, of course, they were all different. You know, when you start looking at anything under a microscope, everything looks different, right? So... As an adult, I've asked myself, what drew me to Horton? And what drew me to those stamps? And the best answer that I can come up with is that I'm really interested in what can be seen with the naked eye or in the details that are invisible on a first read or on a first viewing. And this idea that there's always so much more to what we can see, experience, and process. Hence, my obsession with the shower scene. So, you know, we all see things that other people don't see. And we either choose to pay attention to this, or we don't. And if we do, we either choose to do something about it, or we don't. And that, to me, is what being an artist really is fundamentally about. Art, I think, is essentially putting a spotlight on what we would like other people to pay attention to. It's about sharing preoccupations. But it's also about sharing your own personal truth. As Fellini, the great late Italian filmmaker, said, the artist is the medium between his fantasies and the rest of the world. And so the end result is really twofold. First, through art, we can reveal something about who we are, fundamentally, at our core. I mean, some of the greatest art that I've ever seen or experienced, it really literally feels like, or virtually feels like, the artist stripped naked in front of me. Because it's about putting yourself in that vulnerable space where you're open to judgment and to criticism. And that's exactly what Hitchcock did with Psycho. He had nothing to prove. I mean, you're talking about a filmmaker who was at the peak of his career, he was 61 years old, he had just made Vertigo and North by Northwest. And he picks up this pulp novel by Robert Bloch and says, this is going to be my next film. Nobody wanted to produce it. It was beneath him to do this. So he almost entirely funds it himself. He makes it for $800,000 with his TV crew from Alfred Hitchcock Presents. And Psycho was his greatest success. 
Secondly, art is about creating dialogue. It's about communication and making profound connections with your audience or your readers. For Hitchcock, it was about the emotional impact, always, about provoking a visceral reaction, what he called pure cinema, which you can certainly experience with the shower scene, this extraordinary editing, which I will never get to the bottom of it, this juxtaposition of images without a single line of dialogue that you know, made audiences in 1960 completely freak out. The amazing thing is that through art, you can continue to move people and to challenge minds hundreds, even thousands of years after you're gone. If you look at a painting like Christina's World by Andrew Wyeth, which, by the way, is one of my all-time favorite paintings, you instantly connect and engage with Andrew Wyeth, but also with Christina, who was a real person, and her plight. You don't have to know who Christina was, the fact that she had polio, or what the painting is about, or what it meant for Andrew Wyeth. But it engages you to feel something. And in that way, you're essentially communicating with the dead. It's a very profound experience. So what we do as writers, as artists, is incredibly important. It's, quite frankly, vital. And that's why I believe it's really essential to constantly challenge ourselves to understand what drives us to do what we do. It's a responsibility. If you've picked a story out of the million stories that you're capable of telling, why did you pick that one story? What is your story going to add to the genre or to the literary tradition within which you've chosen to work? In other words, what's your intent? If you can't answer that question, then why are you sweating over that 500-page novel that you've been working on for the past five years? <laughs> I think that's a very legitimate question to ask. So you may ask me what my intent is with 7852, and I think that's a, it's a fair question, so I might as well tell you now. My intent is to reveal the shower scene as the absolute culmination of Hitchcock's craft and cinematic genius, and to firmly establish it as the greatest and most important scene in the history of moving picture, and I mean that very seriously, by landslide. In the process of making that film, I realized, you know, reading Horton Hears a Who when I was two years old, every morning, looking at my stamps through a microscope, you know, looking for little nuances, it all sort of in a strange way led me to make this particular film, which is the truest expression of what I'm about, at least as of now. I've always believed that any subject can become truly fascinating if you just look closely enough. I mean, I've made films about Mike the Headless Chicken. Don't watch that one. Please don't watch that one. <laughs> Klingon speakers, George Lucas, Paul the Psychic Octopus, zombie culture. I mean, my dad thought it was nuts. It's probably right. But, you know, I've been making movies now for the past 13 years. And it's all really sort of starting to make sense. I've essentially entered now a new phase in my creative process. What hasn't changed is the fact that I passionately love this world. And I passionately love this life. And I'm driven to show people how I see it. But equally important, I am passionate about hearing how other people see it too. I'm very much a consumer of expression. And I love the fact that we all have infinitely diverse voices and stories to tell. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. I've always held the belief that who we are dictates what we do, 
But what we ultimately leave behind defines who we are. Guy Madden, the great contemporary Canadian filmmaker, said that he never in his entire career compromised about a single shot, about a single frame in his entire filmography. That's remarkable. I envy that. You know, I mean, for Doc of the Dead, I had to work with the studio and I had to throw a lot of tantrums and I got about 90% of what I wanted, which is actually a lot. You know, it's not the way it works. But when I talk about, you know, what we do and what we leave behind, it doesn't have to be art, of course. It can be a child. It can be the, the relationships, the friendships that we built and nurtured over the years. At the end of the day, I think what matters is authenticity. Understanding who we are and being true to that. Are we going to play it safe and write what other people want us to write? Or write what we think people want to read? Or do we write what matters to us, what preoccupies us, what haunts us, and hope that maybe there's an audience for it? There's really no greater feeling than to work on something you know you're supposed to be doing. And I feel unbelievably fortunate that I get to do this right now with this particular film. So I hope you'll get a chance to watch 7852 on the big screen when it comes out next year. And I thank you for your time. Um, hi. Hi. <laughs> hi. Uh, up until a certain point, our parents dress us, and clothing just sort of appears on our bodies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, after that, up until the 50s and the 60s, people used to make their own clothing. They would make really deliberate choices about fabric and color and style, and they would sew their own clothes. Me and my generation, we did something really different. We just started shopping at the mall. <laughs> Back when I was growing up, Abercrombie and Fitch was the big thing, and this is when the shirtless guys <laughs> at the front of the store, they were greeting you, so... <laughs> As preteen girls, we would walk past these grown men, these Adonises, and we would see these advertisements on the wall of perfect models wearing preppy clothing or no clothing at all. And of course, we felt the pressure to buy the clothes, look like them, imitate them, but we couldn't because we were regular girls. This is me. I couldn't come even close to looking like an airbrushed model. Um... To me, these advertisements became less inspiring. They became irritating. They became <laughs> infuriating. And dressing like other people became really boring. <laughs> now, when you're growing up in the late 90s in the middle of America and you don't want to shop at the mall, you don't have a lot of other options. So I started shopping at thrift stores. And it's become one of the greatest passions of my life. I remember one of the first things I ever bought. It was this pair of polyester plaid pants. I wish I had a picture. I don't have a picture, but they were Easter egg blue, and they were bubblegum pink, and they were hideous. Uh, I probably picked them out because they looked like the most Halloween costume thing on the rack, the brightest thing on the rack. Uh, I believed I looked cool and different and like the antithesis of Abercrombie, but I probably just looked like a moron. Most of high school, I just looked like a moron. On some level, though, I'm really proud of that oblivious high school me because I think I was onto something. Fashion is about experimentation, and when you're a kid, that's what you should be doing, experimenting. It's really fun, but it's also a crucial and necessary step in your development. 
I was a kid. I was 16 years old, and I was being unselfconscious about the way I looked. I was being impulsive and wild and kind of weird. <laughs> but I think that's really important because I was trying to figure me out. And yes, in the process, I often ended up looking like this, which is um, an old man who went to a golf tournament in 1962. <laughs> but I was on the right track because sometimes you have to reach outside of yourself outside of societal norms to learn what defines you. As I got older, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, um, but clothing remained this constant factor as I chiseled away at it. Uh, I worked on movies. I eventually, in college, started working on movies, uh, and I ran costume departments for feature films for like 10 years of my life. Uh, most of the movies I worked on you never saw nobody ever saw them, they were terrible they were awful (laughs) but there was something at the core of costuming that I really connected with you're given these characters who don't actually exist in real life all you know about them is contained in 100 pages of dialogue and through creating their appearance you get to bring them to life you get to make them into believable human beings costuming made me realize something about clothing in general and that's that we understand one another by the way we look I know it sounds discouraging and pessimistic almost, but I think it's really wonderful. We get to use the first impression instinct to our advantage. Unlike so many other things we don't have any control about, like our hair or our weird toes or our weight or our skin. Clothing is a physical trait we can change every day. We get to choose what we like the most about ourselves. We get to enhance what we love. When we get dressed, we get to create the character that we want to be and the persona other people see. For a long time, I played with roles. I tried on personalities, like I tried on clothing. I remember in college, I was right out of college, um, I bought this vintage 60s blue cocktail dress. I have no idea why I bought it. It was completely random. It was really fancy for me. And I ended up wearing it to a wedding. It was an old friend's wedding. It was full of people who I didn't know very well anymore. Um, they were getting serious jobs and serious relationships and I was moving to a new city where I didn't know anybody I felt really unsure about my life but that dress, it gave me confidence somehow it made me feel mysterious and happy I laughed and I danced now that dress wasn't me exactly it was kind of a character I was playing but it was who I needed to be for a night I think it's wonderful when sometimes the way you feel inside and the way you portray yourself on the outside and the way the world's happening around you, how they all line up. I think that's what a memory is. When you almost become a character in your own story and then you can go back years later and replay the moment like a movie. I never stopped vintage shopping. I still vintage shop a lot. <laughs> I started almost like becoming a herder. And so, <laughs> and so we had to open a vintage shop. Me and my business partner who's here, we followed really similar paths through life. And today we own a vintage clothing store called Vo Vintage. It's our full-time job, and we get to sell vintage clothing to people all around the world who love it as much as we do. Um, oh, hold on. Here's some images of the store as it is now. We think a lot about the future of vintage and what it's becoming. Uh, We think about transitioning out of vintage clothing. But there are some things that really worry me about the fashion industry as it stands today. 
I talked already about clothing from the 60s because I love it so much. But it also happens that the 60s were a time in America when clothing manufacturing was at its pinnacle, its peak, because somewhere around 95% of what we wore in the 60s was being made here in America, 95%. Today, that statistic has completely flipped, and 98% of what we buy is being made overseas. Um, a lot of times it's being made in third world countries by people who are very poorly paid, who work really long hours, and they're working in really unsafe conditions. They are making what we as Americans are demanding, what me and my friends set the precedent for back in the 90s when we were like voraciously shopping the malls like pack animals. And that's, uh, we all know these terms, Groupon, Black Friday, flash sales. Um, we want to spend nothing and get everything in return today. It sounds like an almost impossible math equation, and that's what it's becoming. When we pay $20 for a shirt, when we pay $10 for a shirt, something, some part of that shirt, the quality is going to suffer, or the quality of life for the person making that shirt is going to suffer. And like I said, I believe in experimenting with our looks and our appearances, but at what cost? Vintage feels like a wonderful solution to this problem. So much already exists in the world. So much already exists in abundance. Why not look to the past before we take detrimental steps into the future? So the trouble is, for us, convincing people to wear people's old clothes. <laughs> There's like a certain stigma associated with it. It's old clothes, but also we have ideas of what people who wear vintage clothing, what they look like, right? This guy. <laughs> They look wacky, they look quirky, they look cutesy. We see people buying vintage clothes for costume holidays, like Halloween, or ugly Christmas sweater parties. <laughs> These guys are giving us a bad name. What we're trying to do with Vogue, with my business right now, is um, move away from this. We are not going to buy the plaid polyester pants anymore. We are not going to buy the cocktail dresses you only wear once to a wedding. Instead, we are buying clothing that we want to wear. We have grown up a little bit, and we are trying to sell vintage that grows up with us. We want to prove to our customers vintage can feel as comfortable and as contemporary today as anything that you could walk into the store and buy. For example, well over a decade ago, it's been almost 10 years, I found this pair of black pants in a thrift store. I remember almost passing them by, but I went back. This is how we like shop at the thrift stores. It's like really crazy, and so we, we miss things once in a while if they're simple. We're trying to slow down and go back to those things. I found this pair of pants. They were well-made. They were made in America. They were made by a famous designer. They were probably worth a lot of money. I bought them for $2. <laughs> I might be wearing them right now. <laughs> um, they've become a building block of my wardrobe, and I've had them for so long, longer than most people keep clothing today. I think that's what good vintage can do. That's what worthwhile quality clothing in general can do. These pants... These pants have taught me, this is the weirdest sentence of the night. <laughs> These pants have taught me something about being honest with myself. There's so much power in clothing and how it can affect you subconsciously. You know those pieces of clothing that um, like you're like tugging at or the neck is itchy or the armholes are too tight and it makes you sweat and halfway through the day you wish you had anything else on? Clothing has the power to ruin your day. So on the opposite end of the spectrum, it has the power to make you feel confident 
and at ease and comfortable and proud of what you're wearing and how you spent your money. We can dress as a means of experimenting in that stuff. We can costume ourselves in that stuff, but eventually we get old and that shit gets tiresome. (laughs) Eventually we dress as a means of settling into our skin and our identities. This doesn't mean we stop shopping. It just means we shop smarter and we buy clothing we can depend on. People often ask me, my business partner, about our shopping habits. And I'm not perfect. I'll be the first to admit I'm hypocritical once in a while. People ask me about my closet a lot and what's in there. And there is new stuff alongside the old stuff. And people want to know what treasures we have hidden away. Uh, There aren't any. (laughs) It's a lot of turtlenecks in my closet. Mm. If we find something really wonderful, something really special, we sell it in the shop. We want to put it back out there into the world because we want vintage circulating and we want it to find the home where somebody will love it. We always remember, though, those things that are really special, those things that we've touched and have been beautiful. One of my favorite memories of something I ever tried on was my grandma's wedding gown. She was a bodacious Italian woman, so she had big boobs, and she was really short, so it didn't fit me really well. It was kind of yellow, and it smelled like mothballs by the time I tried it on. I knew her as a 75-year-old woman, and she was in full-on grandma mode. She had the body of a grandma. She had the temperament of a bulldog sometimes, a lovable bulldog. But the things I can know and understand about her from this dress she wore when she was 23 years old are innumerable. I know how petite she was, how her body was shaped, what a knockout she was. I know how she felt about the importance of tradition and ceremony and family. I know because of this dress that she was much more multidimensional than I ever gave her credit for. She was full of passion, glamour, lightheartedness, happiness. How wonderful is this? Because of vintage clothing, I've literally been able to stand in someone else's shoes. I've worn clothes that have belonged to family members and to strangers, to women and to men, to people of all shapes and sizes and ages and ethnicities, to people who were traditional and straight-laced, and people who were odd and outcast. I've been able to empathize with people who I've never met or known before. I think this is really important to remember at all times, but especially right now in a world where differences are becoming really apparent, when politics are trying to divide us into categories and politicians are trying to tell us that some people are like this and some people are like this and we are not the same. I think it's important to look at things like appearances and clothing and the way we look because those are things that seem divisive at first. But instead of that, if we dig a little bit deeper, they can be a means of connecting with the past and the world and with one another. Thanks. Well, thank you guys for having me and listening to me. Um, my name is Jolt. That is my name. It's, it's, uh, it's a nickname that was given to me when I was 12 years old. Uh, it's Om de Bloom, and it's, it's become my professional artist name. Um, I was announced as a graffiti artist tonight, so that's, that's what I'll represent. Um, I, there's a lot of things that I do. I'm not just a graffiti writer. Um, I 
I am a creative consultant. I am a curator. Um, the last event that I worked on curating was Westward's Artopia. Um, I work with them. I, I brought the 20-something artists on board, worked with the venue, do things like that. I've been a creative consultant for uh, Pepsi. I do interesting things, um, endorsement deals with random. I, I've gained some credibility through simply writing my name on walls. Um, I, I'm a North Denver native. I can proudly say that I'm about as Denver as it gets. <laughs> you might hear what a Denver accent sounds like tonight if, if you're not from here. You might hear the way that I pronounce my L's or things like that that are very Denver. I'm from the north side. I'm from a neighborhood that's completely been gentrified. It's completely changed. I can't deny that I'm sitting in a mansion in a room full of predominantly white people. Uh, this, these are things. I have a, a radio show on 88.5 called Denver Trendsetters, and a lot of what we do is um, have conversations about the cultural development of our city. Um, I do a lot of different things, a lot of different things. I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Americana, and graffiti culture comes from here. I think that it's an incredible thing when we speak about like vintage clothing and those sorts of things. I, I, I love that, you know, the, the idea of this clothing that was made here in a time when we were pushing design and things like that. I, I love, you know, classic American automobiles. And I love graffiti. These are very American things. Um, I'll show you guys a bit of my work. You know, I'm pretty unscripted, and, and I like to have conversations when put in the position to do this sort of thing so if you have some sort of thought that is provoked by what I'm saying you know say it ask me a question um, I don't know how many of you know graffiti writers or, or how many graffiti writers have presented themselves to you this is an underground culture usually all you see is our vandalism you know what I mean or, or, or whatever it is you're, what you think of graffiti I don't know what this room thinks of graffiti what I think of graffiti may be very different um, I see graffiti art as an evolution in linguistics I see it as, as, as a deep thing I, I see that um, you know we've used this this alphabet for a very long time and, and there hasn't been a lot of radical changes in it and as our, our ability to understand and process language evolves you know and change it so does our ability to learn and if you can read graffiti I mean if you can look at like gothic writing and understand that that came about monks meditating on something and trying to strip it of its oppressive nature and, and changing that. And then you can look at the graffiti movement of the 70s of kids in New York painting their name using these same alphabets but arming them with arrows and making them very aggressive. This is where I'm coming from with my graffiti art. I think that it's a, it's a very profound thing. It's something that I've done for over 20 years now. Um, this piece that you're looking at here is the largest mural in Colorado. Um, this is 1099 Osage. I created this mural after volunteering in this community and working with the kids for like three years, and the opportunity presented itself. Um, what I painted on the wall was a huge Native woman and a huge uh, Somalian woman. Um, I was not only celebrating the, the history of the community, but where it's going. I know that community. I know the kids in the community. There, you know, I I always identified and tripped out. I I come from a Chicano culture. 
for those of you that might not, how many people are native to Denver in this room? Show of hands. We got a couple. Hey, that's, that's good to see because there's, you know, and, and by native I mean that you didn't move here 10 years ago because, sorry, <laughs> you don't get that. <laughs> um, but understanding the, the community, I, I, I wanted to create a piece of public art. One, one thing that I learned through my career is that what I was doing as a graffiti artist was, was creating public art. Um, sometimes it goes against society, but it was something placed in public. Placement has always been important for me with my work. Um, let me show you guys a little bit more of what I do. Actually, I have a question for you. Yeah, it's invited. You, you, uh, you talked about, you said graffiti writer. Yeah. And as, of course, graffiti artists. Are these the same or not? Um, no. A true graffiti artist works with typography. Graffiti is based around type. Graffiti is based around letters. Everything else that can be called graffiti or you have this new movement of street art, that's not graffiti. It, it really isn't. I, I, I come from north of Denver, um, now known as the Highlands. A lot of things around me have been gentrified and changed. Um, a lot of the people that now represent street art are not of the streets. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's almost starting to serve as wallpaper for gentrification. You start to see very friendly art. Um, I know some of, some of the guys that I know that are creating graffiti art or what's being cons- considered graffiti art don't, don't even understand the power of the letter. We are writers. We are writing. We are utilizing letters. We are utilizing typography. Again, this is an evolution of linguistics. This is something that a lot of people don't necessarily understand. Why would we arm a letter with arrows, an arrow being the, you know, the oldest representation of a missile, these sorts of things? Like this, there's, there's a lot of... Um, It's fighting against the oppressive nature of what we know and how we can communicate and saying something else. Uh, And this is an American culture born of of the ghettos in New York City. And now graffiti is a worldwide thing. Everywhere you go, there is graffiti art. And and a lot of people follow in the tradition of creating letters as well. Um, I've been able to use these opportunities to, to create a lot of public art too, though not everything I do is based around based around letters. I do commercial work. These are all, you know, as an artist, you gotta, you got to find a means of supporting yourself, especially within a city like Denver. Unfortunately, Denver is a very growing place, but as any artist know here, there's people will buy a $10,000 bike. And you would not know they have any sort of money. You know what I mean? They don't, like, you go to Miami, people wear $5,000 gold glasses, and there's Rolls Royces, and it's a different lifestyle of um, being able to, you know, spend your money on, on, on art to show the flamboyant lifestyle that you live. That's not really a, a, a typical Denver thing. So it really is kind of hard to make it as an artist out here. Um, the public arts realm is definitely one way. Denver does have a great, great public art, you know. And, and I think public art represents a city, but at the same time, I think graffiti art does too. I think that, you know, if you go to New York and you see this communication that's happening on the streets, this expression that's happening on the streets, it gives it character. You go to a city where everything is painted over, and it's kind of, it, that's boring to me. That's, I, I don't see much expression there. Um, we created a lot of different I've done a lot of different films um, revolving around a lot of the art that I've done but a big thing with my art 
is is the the placement and the community development around it and and how is this going to resonate with the people that have to see it sometimes i want to create a piece of work that represents the community sometimes i just want to write my name on something illegally and express <laughs> the fact of like i exist therefore i am there i can find value in a tag properly placed uh, over a mural that took somebody a year to work on sometimes. Um, I, I, I think that there's, there's a lot of expression with writing. I think that everybody has their signature. I think that the way that you move uh, when you write, I think that that rhythm, I think that uh, that's something very powerful. Uh, when I see a tag, I see that. I see some individualism. Uh, and, and we talk about like the way that our... Our societies are going nowadays. That's that's not a, a thing. Like the individual is not necessarily celebrated. Everybody is conforming. At least for me to say that, because I come from I come from North Denver, and I seen my neighborhood completely change. I seen the culture of the way people existed in in parks. The um, you know, the, does anybody know the flour mill lofts? Yeah. Know the flour mill lofts. I um, man, I. I went in there when I was like 12 years old. I seen my first like naked woman doing a photo shoot. I did my first graffiti in there. Shot my first gun in there. Like that's you know I had like all this experience in my in my in my neighborhood in my community. And recently I sold somebody a painting for like seven thousand dollars that lives in there. And it's so interesting for me to see how the city has changed around me. You know this place where I was just just being me, myself, a product of, of my community and expressing myself. Um, and now it's a miracle that the security let me through the front door. You know what I mean? <laughs> let alone that somebody paid me a good amount of money to be delivering some work there. Um, I, again, am, I'm a product of, of Denver, and, and I think that graffiti culture has an important place within our society. I think that it expresses that that need to to be an individual and to to be yourself uh and and, and not being confined against like oh is this illegal or what are people going to think i i write my name on things daily um but at the same time you know i am also celebrated within the city's public arts i again i would like to have a conversation with you guys because i think that there might be a misinterpretation of what graffiti art is and, and sometimes I wonder that amongst my like within myself of like, do people still think about graffiti as being a bad thing? Like, if graffiti occurs in your neighborhood, has your neighborhood started to um, decline? If you guys have vandalism in your community, if somebody writes their name and expresses themselves on a wall in your community, have you lost the value within your neighborhood? That's a question that I have for you guys, and I'm curious if, you know, how, how do you guys feel about that? Or do you find the value in individualism? Do you see that somebody is expressing themselves? Um, or do you take it personal, like, hey, somebody just pissed on my property. You know, somebody just wrote their name here. Um, I think it depends on how well they do it. Uh, really, it's like if you look at something and see it. Yeah, I will have that view. It's not necessarily something that I consider something I want to look at. How do you define what craft is uh, when there's not an institution to tell you? When there's nobody here to tell you what good graffiti is? Um, Is it something colorful? Is it something pretty? 
um, because you know if if there's like a if there's a if there's a, a place in society where it hurts, graffiti sometimes will tell you that. Graffiti will be an indicator of that. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I think that the signature, simply the signature and the quality of the signature, style. I enjoy style. I enjoy. I, I'm going to continue to mention this individualism. I, you know, when we talk about fashion and things like that, I grew up in a culture of. Individuals. I grew up in a culture of style. I grew up in Chicano culture in Denver, um, and style goes a long way. And when I see a signature on a wall that has a bit of style and expression, that stands out to me. Um, I, I would consider that to be of quality, but I think poor placement, say, tagging on a small business or something like that. These are just radical things that somebody did. And so most of the time you have a kid trying to find their identity. But I'm 34 years old. I'm an adult. I'm a professional. I have an art show going on right now at a high-end gallery. Um, like tonight, if any of you want to go after this, it's at Point Gallery. Um, but I'll still probably be in the alley tagging my name, expressing myself. Um, yeah. Yeah, at times. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I like, you know, I. I yeah. Yeah. I, I, I come from a radical background. Uh, my father was a, a Brown Beret, Chicano revolutionary. Um, my uncles were Black Panthers. Like, I come from a very radical background. And if I see somebody take a fire extinguisher to the front of a Starbucks, it makes me smile. Um, I'm not I, I see Starbucks come to the neighborhood and the neighborhood is done I don't see the, a developmental growth there I see a step back um, haven't, you, haven't, I mean, haven't you benefited from that? yeah absolutely I have I, I, I've, I've done commercial work for Pepsi I don't drink Pepsi I don't I don't I don't you know I don't I don't cater to that I don't support that but it's a it's a sacrifice that you know I I'm not going to be a starving artist, and if I can create a platform to where these companies are going to represent me and push me forward, and then once I get on that platform and I sit in front of you guys and I say don't fucking drink that shit, it's whack. <laughs> I, just being real with you, I'm not I'm not I have no. It's about making money, and it's a lot better than going and clocking in somewhere at 8 o'clock in the morning and clocking out at 4.30 or whatever. I haven't had – I never had a job. Since I was 19, I've been a professional artist. Straight out of high school, I had an agent. Um, and I understand the sacrifice of creating commercial work. Um, there's artists that can do it and, and not have to commercialize themselves. Uh, unfortunately, that 
the opportunity for me to create commercial work and support myself without just doing my fine art has presented itself. And no, I have no problem with that. And I, and I tell artists, I tell fine artists all the time, if you get the opportunity to make some money, what you are doing is you are buying your time. What you do with that time is going to define the person who you, whom you are. Um, but you have to buy your time. And if I can do the mural I was just showing you guys the video of, that, I love doing that. That was great. That was a total expression. But, you know, I, I can do a mural for Pepsi and, you know, it's, it's a $15,000 mural. I just bought my time. I can be in the studio for two months creating what I want to do. It's a sacrifice. And I, I think that, you know, the individual artist has to decide if they want to make that. But I've totally been content with it. Um, especially, I had somebody tell me one time, they were asking me about graffiti, and I was like, man, look at these billboards in my community. Like, they're selling us, like, malt liquor and showing us, you know, shit. And he's like, well, if you really had a problem with it, why wouldn't the community get together and put a bunch of money together and put up their own billboard? And it's like, well, why wouldn't we just go paint over that billboard for free illegally? <laughs> you know what I mean? And at the same time, you know, take the funding from these people and, again, come up and say, yeah. I, I have no problem with commercializing what I do. Um, that might sound like, you know, to some people a sellout because people say, you know, oh, you got to be so true to everything. But. I don't think there's anybody in this room that doesn't have a day job and that they love to do at night. So, no, Simply buying my time. I, and I have these, like, pretty crazy, like, endorsement deals and things like that that I've done where people reach to, like, this street culture. Um, to co-sign what they do. It, it's interesting, like, the trends that we set being of, of the street culture. The other night, this occurred. I'm not going to say that I did it. <laughs> um, but it happened. I, I invented this gorilla. Um, do any of you know any... Do any of you guys know about, like, the History Channel and a TV show called Gangland? Has anybody seen that? And they have this guy that's like, and the gang paints these gorillas. And he like scares you. And it's like the History Channel lying to you once again about something. Well, they tried to lie about me. And they tried to speak about North Denver. And they tried to tell the story of our community. And they said that my, my art was, was gang related. Um, my art is related to my community. And I come from a community where gangsters. And that is a part of our, our culture doesn't mean that I'm a gang member, but they tied it in together, uh, and I sued the History Channel for it without a lawyer. I stepped to them, and like they came and wrote me a check and made me sign, <laughs> made me sign something that said I wouldn't talk about that. But here in front of you guys tonight, I'm going to tell you straight up, the History Channel paid for my daughter's college, and fuck the History Channel. <laughs> and, and that's real. You know what I mean? I, I come... I come from the street culture and I don't deny it even though I can curate shows at museums and galleries and I can come here and share this with you and, and, and talk about you know what I do I, I don't deny where it comes from and, and those are the things that graffiti is graffiti it's, it, it is a culture of the streets how do I define my street culture um, what is it to me it's everything. It, 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 culture is everything because we, I come from a community that we were all poor. 
You can't make fun of anybody for not having what you have. There was no way of looking at people of being indifferent because we didn't have anything other than culture. It's, it's the lifeline. It's, 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 the, it's the beat to life. It's, it's that rhythm. It's that, um, you know, it's that 1984 Monte Carlo with a custom paint job on it where some kid that moved has family that came from Mexico and grew up in this American culture and took this iconic image of the American you know vehicle that was created in Detroit that represents so much of our our, our, our history as Americans and and did a custom paint job on it and put an Aztec soldier on the on the hood you know I'm, I'm a product of, of, of where I come from but I do it in the way that I do because there's things within my soul that make me move a little bit different I I don't um, I don't like the way that my community looks where I came from, and it's not because it's all white or it's not because it's people with more money, but it's because everybody looks exactly the same. I grew up in a culture where individualism once again was a very prominent thing, where when we were in the parks, there were so many people just being themselves. I'm just one kid from the community. I mean, out of my neighborhood came so many like professional skateboarders and snowboarders and and, and musicians, and and this was a thing that like maybe we didn't have money to go to college and be doctors or whatever, but we were born funky. We got souls that resonate in us. Uh, creating public art for me came from the Chicano Revolutionary Movement, came from artists such as Emmanuel Martinez, Jerry Jaramillo, uh, Siqueiros, people that, that, that spoke for their communities, and I'm just a derivative of that. Yeah? Um, when you asked us if we felt like if we saw graffiti in our neighborhoods, if it took our neighborhood down or something, and when you're talking about the gang stuff, one thing that I keep thinking about is um, the idea of fear. Yeah. Like, I think that sometimes especially white people we see um, some graffiti and it depends on where it is or what it is but it might make us afraid yeah um, and I'm wondering like I don't even know how to ask this question like how can we be less afraid and how can we um, be open to what that is or whatever you know Do you well what yeah I would say as white people the first thing you need to realize is most of the kids doing graffiti are your children <laughs> Most of the kids doing graffiti are white kids. And surprisingly enough, they're white kids that come from the suburbs. They're white kids that have adapted to this culture. They need that individuality. And again, the idea that I can express myself, therefore I am. I can leave my name here. I can make a mark, literally. Um, it's, it comes from a black Puerto Rican culture, but it's a lot of white kids that are doing it. What, what I could say is that you look at it as somebody took the, somebody wrote their name there. Somebody like risked going to jail to do this. Why the fuck would they do this? Why do they feel the need to do this? Maybe because societal's norms don't appeal to them. You know what I mean? Maybe because that's some sort of uh, a, a radical expression and this person doesn't even understand it but it's in them to do that. I feel like most people have that. Now they might not go and write on a wall but that's in us to not conform, not do, you know, we got to sit in traffic every day and, and these sorts of things. Don't it make you want to like do something outside of that? I don't know, something expressive, something over the top. And it doesn't have to be an illegal activity. Um, I don't think most of these people are, that are doing graffiti myself, I don't 
the only time I think about it being illegal is the fear of going to jail for it. Other than that, the rules and the laws and all of that, it's not. That's not a deterrent for me to be myself. Um, I don't know if that necessarily answers it. Yeah. Intent, which is what we sort of started the conversation with, uh, and and tradition. Um, it's very easy to gain um, some sort of notification and, and some sort of credibility when you call yourself street. Um, when you know, and and a lot of artists now utilize public art and walls as a way to promote themselves. You have graphic designers taking posters. Shepard Ferry? Shepard Ferry is a graphic designer that puts posters on walls. He's not a graffiti artist. Actually, if Shepard Ferry's art comes to your neighborhood, it's, if he is representing what is street in your community, it's probably a good sign that your neighborhood has been gentrified. <laughs> um, I draw the line when it starts to become sort of like that. Um, I like street art to be born of the street and exist in the street, not to be created in a studio and brought to the street. Um, and that's a huge define. Like, that, that, that is where I kind of draw the line, I would say. Yeah? So, when you asked about, I've never thought of this before, when you asked the question about what <laughs> good could be in that, or let's say bad writing, but as an artist, a lot of us get to spend our time in our studio perfecting our crafts. We do it in school, we do it behind doors and no one gets to see the shit that we made for 15, 20 years and then one day we get good enough and then we just run the outer walls. So sometimes whenever you see a young graffiti writer just writing, you know, like that piece right there in the top right corner. I'd see that and I would go, oh man, like, that sucks. I don't want that to <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'd have to take a second to pause and go, maybe that's like a 12-year-old kid and like, okay, I want to see this kid when he's 22. You know what I mean? Like, okay. Is there a time where you feel like, I mean, that's more of a statement than a question, but to return to the question, like, yeah, I do, and I wouldn't show them because they're horrible. Um, but what I would say, and this is me, this is me speaking as a fine artist. This is me speaking as the guy that shows in galleries and museums and that. Some of my favorite graffiti will always be that bathroom stall graffiti that says "fuck you." <laughs> There's no style to it. There's nothing to it. But you're at, and this, I mean, for me to even say this in front of y'all, but everybody's had to use a public restroom at one point and possibly seen this graffiti. You're sitting there in a vulnerable state, right? Pants are down, this and that. You look over and it says, fuck you. And you're like, no, fuck you, asshole. There's something that occurred there. There's something, and I'm a fan of that for that reason. Like, you could take, like, Especially now with like, you know, things like the MCA or, or, or the movement in contemporary art is everything is so overly conceptualized and quite often it's just wrapped up in a bunch of bullshit. 
uh, and, and technicality doesn't even matter as far as an artist. You could take the whole, you know, side of the, the MCA and write fuck you on the side. And if you could express it in that way that I just explained to you why I'm a fan of that sort of work, you could sell it to people. Um, there is shitty graffiti. A big, a lot of graffiti is bad. But so is also a lot of architecture. So is also a lot of, you know what I mean? A lot of design that we see, a lot of clothing design, or, you know, a lot of the things that we see. And, yeah. (laughs) You know, and and there's also going to be work like this. This, You know, this mural right here exists um, in an old water refinery plant that is off of 50th and Washington. And this used to be one of the biggest graffiti yards in the nation, in the U.S. There was more art there than anywhere else. City came through, turned it into a park. Nobody goes to this park. It's not a very welcoming place. Nobody knows about it. I think that it should be a place where we embrace it and we let artists paint. Um, This artist came straight from Japan to, to paint this piece there in a very cutty part of our city that nobody would ever know about, you know? I I painted that one there. There's, you know, there's all these walls where this art just occurs. Um, I also do fine art. I had an art show recently at Leon Art Gallery. It was all based off of this idea of the art of war. And understanding that these letters are sort of equipped in battle mode and they're armed and they're very offensive and uh, this was sort of a balance to that of creating these defensive pieces, these masks, and this sort of counterbalance. Yeah? So um, what resources are there for like, young graffiti artists who are expressing themselves this way? Is there like, a way to channel that and improve it? Are there resources for that? Um, the resources in terms of what? Like grants from the city that can well, encourage if you? you or? To, if you're starting out as a graffiti artist and you want to become a professional artist, like, how do you make that? The thing is, being a professional artist isn't a graduation from graffiti. Um, a graffiti artist will create graffiti, nonetheless. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's a culture of the streets. And you, it's either good and you're dedicated and you create a lot of it and you travel um, and you paint everywhere. Like, there's a clean train movement that occurs in the U.S., um, for you guys to even be privy to this is kind of crazy, but I'll share it with you. Um, graffiti comes from the New York subways, painting trains on subways. So now what you have is artists that travel to these places that have subways, and they paint them still. They don't run. They don't leave the train yard. They get painted over before anybody even sees it. But it occurs daily. And a lot of what these artists create are they recreate the old paintings that were done in the 70s. And they're being redone. Pieces that were done by Dondi are these incredible artists that are in books, are being recreated by, you know, teenagers. And, it, and these are terrorist acts by today's standards, you know, to go into a train yard and create a piece of artwork on, on the subway. But this is a movement within the art world in the United States, a piece of that Americana. Um, it's an underground culture and people take risks to do it, but, you know, it's worth it if you feel the need to express yourself. I know that I've gone over my 15 minutes, I'm sure, um, but I could stay here and, you know, talk shit all night. 
Yeah, okay. Cool. Thank you. If you guys can share the mic so we could get it recorded for the podcast, that'd be optimal. Hey, um, does anyone have any questions for the group? Yeah, I go by my middle name. It's confusing. As a guy, I probably should say this because it's like, Why not men? Yeah. Um, you know, we both used to, we used to sell men's clothes. And as we started um, talking to people about small businesses, people always tell you to do less, almost. They tell you to, like, hone in on what you are. They tell you not to take money or wages for like the first two years they tell you all these things you shouldn't do so they told us to stop selling men's clothes um we want to expand in so many different directions i love menswear um and men ask us this question so much we could be rich right now probably <laughs> so thank you for driving that point home but uh but yeah i mean it's just a result of having to start small Um, I mean, I've seen, like you said, Denver changed so much in less than a year. Right now, we can't even find a storefront to move into that's even close to being reasonable for a small business to survive in. Um, not even on the outskirts of the city right now. We're getting kicked out of a warehouse space that we're in. Um, and... I see all these, it's an artist's warehouse, and these artists don't know where to go now because there's no there's nowhere to go. Those those places Absolutely. don't exist anymore. Um, so that would be something, I don't know. I don't know what the policy would be. Uh, but it need, something needs to happen because artists are going to suffer, and then the city is going to suffer when there's no art. I absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. Talking to the mic. I, um, <laughs> so I just moved out of my studio last week on 35th and Brighton Boulevard. Um, I'm a part of the Rhino Art District. 3501 Brighton Boulevard. But not no more because they're going to tear the whole block down. We're close. We're like right next to you. I I started calling it the Wino Art District. I didn't see any reason to be a part of the Rhino Art District because it felt like just a way of selling property to me. Um, And so I was like, fuck it. It's a bunch of bars around me, this and that. You know, it's the Wino Art District. We turned the Rhino upside down. I got stickers if anybody wants them. Um, (laughs) But this is a big thing. This is a big problem because before I moved there, I had a 7,000 square foot warehouse that I paid $600 a month for month to month for six years. 
um, 28 foot tall ceilings. It was amazing. And then, you know, before you knew it, the, the weed culture hit and every piece of property became worth so much money and artists can't afford to be there. So what's going to happen now? Like the last block of Brighton Boulevard, we've all been pushed out tons of small businesses, not just artists, but a lot of small businesses. And now it's to compete. You have to be a conglomerate of millionaires to be able to be there. Um, What's going to happen if the only people that can afford to live there are like tech center people and dudes that grow weed from, you know, Northern California or whatever? It's, it's going to be boring. It's going to suck. Like, and, and that's, a tr- that's a thing. We need to utilize space and maintain space for artists. That's, that's an absolute important thing here in the city. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how much what I do sort of applies to your question, but uh, perhaps this, you know, I can talk a little bit about filmmaking in Denver, which is not a, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I, I spend most of my time not here. Uh, that's, that's just really the reality of it. And, um, you know, I, I work at home. I have a post-production house that, you know, they're, they're in a separate location. My crew is here. I have producers, you know, in different locations around the world. Um, you just sort of find a way to make it work, I guess. Um, you know, and there's, there's very sort of small little groups of filmmakers, you know, here that, you know, that, that do well. Um, but I, I've never sort of really looked at it as a community of, of filmmaking. You just figure out a way to make it work. And that's, you know, and that's what I've done now for 13 years. And again, I started with that Magda Headless Chicken story that you do not want to watch. Um, and, uh, but that, you know, that's sort of what got me going, you know, and, uh, yeah. I have a question for you about yeah. that shower scene. Do you watch it like every workday to reset yourself? <laughs> I mean, I watch it all the time. I watch it every day. I watch it s- several times a day, and I and I, <laughs> I mean, I obsess over the details of it. And you know, the thing that's the thing that's just blows my mind. I mean, I've been working two and a half years now on this film, right? And um, there, there's virtually n- not a single day that goes by that I don't discover something new about it. Um, I mean, I'm, I feel so fortunate that I get to talk to a lot of these incredible people, filmmakers and editors and, you know, some of the best in the world. And, and every time that I interview somebody, they will point to a shot or a cut or something, something that I had never, ever, ever thought about. And then it just, my mind just goes like, you know, um, and, but the thing that, the thing that's, I mean, you know, like you, I could talk about this for hours. But the, the thing that's, that's amazing to me is that, so I've naturally interviewed a lot of editors, like great Hollywood editors. You saw Walter Murch, but many other Academy Award winning you know, editors. And, and there is always this one cut that w- they will show you, and, and they'll say, that's the greatest cut I've ever seen. But they're all talking about a different cut. <laughs> so that scene contains like all the greatest cuts in the history of movies. You know, it's, um, yeah, so it's, I mean, sometimes I get, I have to step away from it because, you know, like I spend morning until night just thinking about a blonde being murdered in the shower. <laughs> it's not, uh, it's not a very pleasant thing, you know, um, but you know, it's what I do. <laughs> um, one more question from the audience. This is for Joel. Oh. Yeah. I um some of the the first large works that I created were on freight trains, 
So it was a matter of a canvas presented itself, and then it went on, and it left. And and I later, you know, started to learn about like Tibetan Tibetan sand sculpture and and the idea of creating work within the moment. I think that's an important thing as an artist. Um, not necessarily trying to preserve work for thousands of years, but hopefully people will talk about the work that I did create later on. I think that could apply to all art on some level, though, or whatever you're doing, because like we find pieces all the time that are beautiful. And like I said, we don't keep them. We put them back out in the world. Like There's got to be something about uh, letting it go. Yeah. And then you're free to start over again. Absolutely. Yeah, start fresh. Yeah, I mean, I just also want to add, I mean, this really applies to film. Like, that, for me, the tragedy is, is you know, we've lost, I think, about 90% of our film heritage prior to 1950. I mean, it's staggering. It's just absolutely crazy. And still now, to this day, I mean, we've got, you know, there's people all the time rediscovering films that we thought were lost, you know, decades and decades ago. Uh, Metropolis, actually, right? We found this, you know, 30 minutes... Uh, that were lost, you know, and we found that, you know, this is a 1927 film. We found that 30 minutes in, in 2008, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, it always breaks my heart. But I, I, by the way, I have to say, like, I, I think it's an amazing thing to be able to do, to make art, to create art in an environment where you know it might just disappear tomorrow. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's an amazing thing. I, I, I couldn't do it personally. It, it just, it kills me, but I respect that a great deal. <laughs> As artists, eventually we got to sell the work. Right, we gotta let it go, um, and it's hard to do. Like your first body of work is to like sell it, and a lot of artists hold on to their work. But the second that you you do let it go, you're free to create more work, and I think that that's an important part of it. I think it really is. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.